What am I missing? Yes, sorry. Jesus, I long to be perfectly whole is the title of the message, I mean of the, of the song. And uh, we, uh, when we sing the, uh, but I, I recognize the, the chorus more than I do the title. It says, wash me now and I should be whiter than snow. But what a, what a beautiful song. And then, then the idea that, Lord Jesus, I long to be perfectly whole. And this morning, I, that just spoke to me as, as I was thinking on the message I would like to share this morning. And so think along this morning as we, as we go through the message about being perfectly whole. Glad that you're here. If you're visiting us, we welcome you to worship with us. Let's bow our heads to pray and ask God to join us and to speak to us this morning. Lord, we we are earthen vessels that need to be reminded that you are the one that makes us perfectly whole. It is you that washes us whiter than snow. And there's nothing that we have in our power to even begin that perfect wholeness, whiter than snow part. It's all about you. So this morning, Lord, as we come, we open your word. We pray, God, that you would speak to us, that you would in some way, by your Holy Spirit, open the scriptures in a way that would be afresh and new and our hearts would be stirred to follow after you with, with, a, with a whole heart. And we ask that in your precious Son's name, for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. The question that I'd like to bring this morning uh, as we begin to consider what are some of the greatest, biggest challenges we have in, in keeping the faith, remaining true? The enemy would come at us from multiple directions. He'd want to destroy us by bringing discouragement. Maybe he attacks us in our finances or in our health, in our, uh, multiple ways to discourage us from following, from keeping the faith. He can bring a multitude of things in our way to discourage us and to break us down because his goal is that we would not keep the faith. And so what, in your mind, is the greatest challenge that you face? It may be different for each one of us, but there is a challenge there. And then on top of that, what is our greatest challenge in passing on our faith to our children? If, if the enemy can stall us in our faith, uh, cause us to doubt, and we don't pass on our faith to our children, in one generation he has accomplished his goal. And now he has wiped out that faith. Unless they come on their own to faith, he has wiped out that line of faith. So is this important? Are either one of those important? And I believe that they are. And... Um, and how important are they, I guess, is a question. So this morning, that kind of prefaces where some of my thoughts are coming from. Is it important that we keep the faith? Matthew 24, 13 says, But he that shall endure until the end, unto the end, the same shall be saved. There's... It, it's, it's enduring to the end that will be saved. And to the, in Revelations to the church in Smyrna, the angel said this, Be thou faithful unto death till the end, and I will give thee a crown of life. Is it important to keep the faith? Yes. It's very important. And what about teaching our children about our faith? Deuteronomy 6, a familiar scripture uh, at the beginning of the Bible, when, when, when God's Word was, was being taught, this is what he said. These words 
which I command thee this day shall be in your heart. There should be in you, that's faith, and you should teach them diligently to your children. In Ephesians, he instructs us that we should, we should bring our children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, teaching them. And we can only do that if that is something that's important to us. It's important that we keep the faith and we pass on the faith. And why does it seem so difficult to keep and to pass on that faith? Sometimes it does seem difficult. And as I was considering this, I was thinking of all the voices that we hear crying out for attention around us, especially in this current culture where, where media and things are so readily available. And they, they are crying out with their own version of what you should believe. And they try to discredit the things that you do believe. And why would you believe that way? And um, it becomes confusing. And before long we realize that we don't really know what we believe. What do I believe? What do I really believe? And so coming to a good, well-rounded, non-lopsided worldview of what I believe is important. But it's also difficult, but it's important. Scripture says, be not conformed to this world. The world is pushing in from all directions. All the voices are coming. And this morning, this was supposed to be a youth message. I didn't realize this until, I can't say that. They had said something earlier, but I forgot about it until this morning. They said something again. But So youth, this is for you as well. This is, this is for you and the others can listen in, I guess you should say. The world is trying to conform us, squeeze us into his mold. And, and having a proper worldview can be difficult, but let's not be conformed to the world because we're, 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 we're forming our views of God from Scripture and not from the world and not from media. If I don't know what I believe, then how can I teach my children what they should believe? I remember back in the, in the 90s, there was a, a show called The Oprah Winfrey Show. And I, I didn't see the whole episode of it, but I remember seeing a clip of a show where she tracked and documented people that were, that were from multiple religions that were seeking out the higher power. And she interviewed them and, and then aired it as a, as a series of, uh, of uh, shows and um, unfortunately, that would have been an interesting study, but unfortunately, they, they filtered that through a New Age perspective. And this is, what, this is the part that I remember her saying. And she said uh, in one clip that she said, one mistake that people make is that they, they, they think there is only one way. And when she said people, she was, in my mind, expressly referring to Christians. There's one mistake that people make is that they think there's only one way, one path. I'm paraphrasing. Only one path that leads to the higher power. We call that higher power God. They may call it light, she said, or some other thing. But there's only, we say there's only one path. She says there's many paths. How confusing would that be if you're searching? disregarding the Bible, disregarding the Word of God, accusing Christians of being exclusive and narrow-minded. Would that be true? Is what she's saying, what millions of people heard her say, that there are many ways to get there. Is that really true? When Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. And yet Jesus, in his own words, said this, Come unto me all Ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. All. That's, ex that's not exclusive. That's inclusive. All that would come to Jesus can be included. All that can come, that come to him. And then he said further that, and it shall come to pass, in Acts it says, and it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of Jesus shall be saved. Whosoever. That's, that's not exclusive in a way that it is exclusive it's only those who call on Jesus but it's inclusive it's whosoever it's all 
And so starting 30 years ago, hearing things like that, and for all these years we hear this, this rumble of voices in our culture that would, that would indicate if you're, if you're a radical Christian or if you're a conservative Christian, then you're narrow and your belief system is intolerant and inherently and wrong. And we hear that and hear that. And it, it becomes difficult to know what do I really believe. It's no wonder we struggle to articulate what we actually believe. The message today is to encourage us towards owning, knowing what I believe and owning what I believe. And then in a future message, Lord willing, I'd like to maybe talk a little bit about passing that belief system on to our posterity, the children that come after, the generations that come after us. Am I on the right path to finding God? And being an, an Anabaptist Christian, is that important? Is my, inher- is my heritage important? What, what my forefathers have taught, is that important at all or, or not? There's a study series in our, in our library in the back here at Sandy Ridge. In the, and in the past, we've, we, some of us have went through that. It's the idea, it's, it has this idea and this topic that we're talking about today, and it's called The Three Chairs by Bruce Wilkinson. And that's the purpose of this chair up here. And um, some of you may have went through that series. I've borrowed some of, his, um, some of his ideas and some of his, his example of a chair this morning. Uh, so as we talk about the chairs... Imagine in your mind's eye the person sitting in that chair and he has certain attributes, spiritual attributes that allow him to be in that chair and make that person you. Which chair do you sit in this morning? We're going to go through some of these chairs. There are three. I call this the lesson of the chairs. Chair number one. This person is saved. I've used this chair. It's an old chair. It's wooden. It's solid. We, we know that, that it's, it's a good chair. It's, meant, it's went through a lot, of, a lot of life has happened on this chair. It's a good, solid chair. Chair number one is a saved person. Not only saved, but he's fully committed to Christ. He is willing to sacrifice everything for Christ. He's ready, he's ready to lay down his life. His agenda, his, his wants and desires for Christ, because Christ is first in his life. They're willing, this person is willing to lose his life for the gospel's sake. And there's a word that is associated with this person, and that word is committed. He is committed. He's committed to Christ. There's many, there are many Christians that have been in chair number one here. Most of us probably have been in chair number one. When we're on the mountaintop and we feel close to God, we are committed. God, I will do whatever you tell me to do. I'm committed. We, are, we find ourselves firmly in chair number one. There's no doubt in what I believe. But what about when we hit the valleys? What about when, when times get tough? What about when there's, when there's troubling things happening about us? What, what then? How committed are we then? When the valleys come, when the enemy blasts into our life, are we still in chair number one? Chair number one people are rare, a rare kind of people. They're a rare people. Committed to God through thick and thin. We want to believe that all of us here at Sandy Ridge are firmly in chair number one. I would love to believe that. The purpose today is to open my heart and ask God, Am I in that chair? God, speak to me. Which chair am I in, God? Chair number one, saved, committed. Chair number two, I'm going to use this chair. If I would have had, um, I would have wanted a more cushy chair. Maybe a, you know, a fluffy, overstuffed one, but this will have to do. Chair number two is a saved person as well. Well, I, I, you guys can probably see the chair. It doesn't matter. The chairs are over here if you can't see them. 
Chair number two is a saved person as well. This person is saved. And they faithfully attend church. Every Sunday they're here. Especially on Sundays. Their conduct, their lifestyle, their outward appearance would convey that they're, they're a Christian. But there are some inconsistencies in their life at times. There's instabilities. Partly because they're not, they're not fully committed, but mostly committed. They're not fully surrendered to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, but they've had an experience with Christ and they've asked Him to come into their heart and forgive them for their sins at one point. But unless you're pumping them, and unless there's revival meetings all the time, and they're in some mentoring program, they start drifting. They, they, they start like, well, I don't know, and, and, and you're just not sure where they're at. They start to drift, not because they're bad. They don't drift because they're bad or because they don't want to live for Christ. They drift because there's a lack of, of effort and a lack of maybe um, diligence in their life. And they just start to float downstream instead of battling upstream. And sometimes the things they say shock you because you had no idea they would have thought that or that they would do, be involved in those kinds of things. Areas and principles that you thought were really important to them, all of a sudden you realize uh, you're not sure where they're at. They're, they lay those aside and discard them as though, well, I, I've changed my mind. It's chair two Christian. Paul uses the word carnal for this person. He says in 1 Corinthians 3, 1 through 4, And I, brethren, could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal, even as unto babes in Christ. I have fed you with milk and not with meat, for hitherto you are not able to bear it, neither are you now are ye able. For ye are yet carnal, for whereas there, are some among, there is among you envying and strife and divisions, are ye not carnal and walk as men? For while one saith, I am of Paul, and the other, I am of Apollos, are ye not carnal? That's a chair too Christian. He likes the plushy parts of the Christian life. He's less committed to God and more committed to self, selfish motives. The word for per person two, chair number two, is compromised. Compromised. And Wilkinson in his, in his teaching on this topic said it this way. God is on the tip of their tongue, but self is on the throne of their heart. Ooh. That, I can just hear Jesus saying, these people praise me. These people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. They honor him with their lips. They're saying the right things, but their heart is far from him. That's chair number two. Chair number three. That's this guy. It's a bit of a rickety chair. Chair number three is not saved. This person is lost. He is not, maybe he's not responded to God yet. God has called him, but he's not responded. They know they're not a Christian. They know that others think they should be a Christian, but they're not. They may have rejected God. God may have called and they said no. They may have grown up in a church. They may have had a Christian family. They know the right words. They know the right things. They may even attend church at times. But the burden of sin in their heart has kept them in bondage. And they're not a Christian. They have not given their hearts to the Lord. They're at, odd with, they're at odds with their Creator. From them you hear words like, how could a loving God do that kind of thing? Or they may say other things that against God. They have all the cultural uh, arguments against Christianity, against God. Paul calls, him, calls them a natural man. But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for their foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them. 
because they are spiritually discerned. The natural man. He's in chair number one. Uh, chair number three. He's chair number three. Hard to talk to some people like that because they've made up their mind. The word associated with them is conflict. They are in conflict. Constant conflict because the spirit, his spirit is warring with God's spirit. God wants to save that person, but his spirit is resisting. God's spirit and their spirit are, are at odds. And zero progress will be made until they humble themselves and come before God and surrender. That's chair number three person, lost. The good news about this person, there is a bit of good news, is that God wants to bring that person from chair number three to chair number one. That's God's desire. That's God's will. That's the will of God. First Thessalonians says, For this is the will of God, even your sanctification. That's God's will. Chair number three to chair number one for all of us, for all of humanity. He wants us in, in our purity and our holiness to be, that's his will. So there we have it. We have three chairs. We have a, a saved, committed chair. We have a, a saved and compromised. This, this man is spiritual. He's saved, committed, and spiritual. This man is saved, and I use that word loosely. Saved, he's compromised, and he's carnal. And then we have a, an unsaved, and we have a, um, a conflicting person that's a natural man. He's just the way he was born. As a child is born with a sin nature, that's where he still, he still lives there. And this, pers- this, this message this morning is for our personal evaluation. It's not, it's not, it's not, I'm not here to judge any of you or to condemn anyone. But you must in your, own man, in your own mind decide which chair, if I'm really honest with myself, which chair am I in? One chair has a certain assurance of salvation. As I was studying this, I thought, one chair has a... That's where we want to be. This is assurance of salvation. We, we know where we're going when we're in that chair. And this one has no assurance. We know where this one's going as well. There's a hot chair... There's, there's, there's a hot chair and a cold chair, spiritually. And that reminded me of what it says in, in Revelations. When there's a hot chair and a cold chair, what, what does this one make? What is this one? What, where does that put this one? Someone help me out. Lukewarm. The Scripture says he's lukewarm. That's what Revelation says. I'll turn to Revelation chapter 3. Let's talk about our, our warm, lukewarm chair. Revelation chapter 3, verse 14. And unto the angel of the church of Laodicea write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works, that thou art neither hot, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would that you were cold or hot. So then, because thou, art, because thou art lukewarm, neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. As I was studying, I wondered, spew, that's the King James language there of spew thee out of my mouth. So I looked it up in the ESV and it just says spit. I'll spit you out of my mouth. That's what it means. I would that you were either cold or hot. Why does God want us either cold or hot? Either in chair one or three. He doesn't want us in chair two. Even though that person has experienced Christ, he doesn't want us in chair two. Why? Because when we have a tendency to be lulled into spiritual lethargy and sleep, we fall asleep in chair two. We, think, we kind of think we've got it made. I got this. This Christian stuff is pretty easy, actually. That's, that's the mindset of chair number two. This isn't so difficult. Just wear, wear my suit coat. Everybody thinks it's fine. I get away with about anything then. It's because 
It becomes a place where, where I fuss about the process, the details, because, well, really, in chair number two, I'd rather live close to the edges. I either want to be at this edge, close to chair number three, or I would like to be in chair number one, but I want to live on this edge here. It's one of those things, and I'm lukewarm. My eyes are not focused on God. They are focused on me. Self is on the throne. God is on our lips, but self is on the throne in chair two. All that I think I am, I'm not. And that's what he says here in Revelations chapter 3. He says, because thou sayest, I'm rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. Spiritually, I'm doing okay. Life is good. I love the Lord. Yes. Really? Because thou sayest, I'm rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. That's chair number two. Chair number two. All my righteousness, all my efforts are in vain. They are but filthy rags before God. Friends, how can we find, how do we find ourselves in such a precarious situation as chair number two? It's not, in my mind, as I was studying, a place that I want to be. I would have thee either cold or hot. The scripture says this past week on Friday, my friend Pablo Yoder, I call him my friend, I call that loosely because I, I knew him. He stayed at our house and we stayed at his house in Nicaragua. He took us around the town, this, the town of Waslala, and we took him up on the mountain to go bird watching, me and the boys. So I call him a friend. He went to meet the Lord this past Friday. And it makes me sad to think that. But he was a man that knew which seat he sat in. I was challenged by him. And he did everything from that chair. He lived out of it. The results of living in that chair, the friendships, the hardships, the influence was amazing as he lived in chair number one. He was committed. And I know we're not to judge ourselves amongst ourselves. We should never do that. But there was a dedication to a cause. There was a commitment to Christ in Pablo that challenged me. It was a privilege to have known him. He's went to meet the Lord now, and, and he is... He is on the other side, and I'm sure he's worshiping with and praising God even today. What chair am I living in? What chair are you living in? Are you in chair number one, or are you just almost there and you're in chair number two? Maybe you're in chair number three. That's the question for today. The place, the chair that I find myself in determines my worldview, how I view life how I do life, and ultimately it affects my destination. And it most certainly affects what I teach my children and the generation that follows after me, my children and my grandchildren. Do we have, do we have a biblical example of this? Well, we do. We have several. We'll look at one this morning. We have Joshua. Dare to stand like Joshua. We sing that song sometimes. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Joshua. It's Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua. I don't. I didn't. I. I don't have the scriptures. I'll have the scripture references on the on on the on the PowerPoint, but I don't actually have the the words up there. So if you have your Bibles, uh, turn with me, Joshua chapter one, and we're going to do big steps through the life of Joshua as we consider this idea of which chair I'm in affects the future generations that follow after me. Joshua 1. Moses has, in the chapter before this, Deuteronomy 30, 34, it talks about the death of Moses. And if you remember, Moses uh, was not allowed to go into the promised land because he had struck the rock instead of speaking to the rock. And God, and God told him, because of this, you can't, 
You can't go into the promised land. But you can go and look over. He stood on, on, on Mount Nebo and was able to look across Jordan into the promised land. That's in Deuteronomy 34. And then we go into Joshua 1. I'm going to read um, Joshua 1. Oops. 1, verse 1 through 3. Now after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, excuse me, now after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, it came to pass that the Lord spake unto Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses, Moses' minister, saying, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise and go over this Jordan, thou and all this people that unto the land which I, I do give you, give to them, even to the children of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot shall tread upon, that shall I give unto you, as I said unto Moses. So that was God's mandate to Joshua. Moses is gone. Now I want you, the Jordan that you're up against, I want you to cross over and take the land. Joshua by this time was older. He was older probably than most of all the people that were with him. They were, they were from babes up to probably the oldest ones were, what, 60 by that time. Forty years he'd walked with Moses in the wilderness, learning from Moses, watching Moses. Joshua saw God's provision from all the way back. He saw him take them through the Red Sea and all the provision those 40 years. He had seen it happen. And there was no doubt that Joshua was firmly in chair number one. He knew that God was the answer. But what of the people that Joshua was leading? What about them? What chair were they in? He was old by now. He was ready to pass on. The, so the, he leads them across into, into, across the Jordan and they start battle, starting with the city of Jericho. You all know a lot of the stories. And they, they went through the land and claimed the land. And now he is getting old. We go all the way back to, to Joshua 23. Joshua is now getting old. And he's ready to pass the baton on. They've watched Joshua work. They've watched him lean upon God this whole time. And in Joshua 23 it says, And it came to pass a long time after the Lord had given rest unto Israel from all their enemies around about, that Joshua waxed old and was stricken in age. They, they'd, they'd conquered the land. They were living there now. And Joshua called for all Israel. He called them all, come. And for the elders and their heads, and for their judges and for the officers, and said unto them, I am old and stricken in age. And I've seen all that the Lord your God hath, and ye have seen all that the Lord your God hath done unto all these nations because of you. For the Lord your God is he that hath fought for you. He recognized that, guys, we carried the sword, but it was God that fought for us. Behold, I have divided into you by lot these nations that remain to be an inheritance for your tribes from Jordan with all the nations that I have cut off, even unto the great sea westward. And the Lord your God, he shall expel them before you and drive them out, out of your sight and you shall possess the land. Be, the, be therefore courageous, verse 6, to keep and do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, that ye shall not, ye shall, ye turn not aside therefrom to the right hand or to the left. What has happened here, they've conquered this whole land, but there's still pockets of people, resistance, that were the heathen, they were not serving God, they were... They were and God wanted this land cleared of all of these people. That was his command. He's called them together. And he's given them instruction. And here's where, where um, uh, verse 14. He says, Behold, this day I'm going the way of all the earth. And you know in, in all your hearts and in all your souls that not one thing hath failed of all the good things that the Lord God spake concerning you, not one thing has failed. All are come to pass unto you, and not one thing hath failed thereof. He's showing the children of Israel that God has been faithful. 
and he sees it. Joshua is coming to the end of his life. The next chapter, Joshua 24. It says there that, And Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem, called all the the elders of Israel, and for their heads and their judges and their officers, and and they presented themselves before the Lord. This was the time when we come to that that famous verse of Joshua in, 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 in verse 15. And he says, And if it seem evil unto you to serve the Lord, choose, ye this, choose you this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the flood or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Firmly in chair number one. It's interesting that he's giving them a choice here. Why, why would he even be thinking that they might not want to serve the Lord? But they make commitments. Verse 16, And the people answered and said, God forbid that we should forsake the Lord and serve other gods. They wanted to make, they want, yes, yes, Joshua, we want to serve the Lord. Which chair are these people in, we wonder? Well, Joshua in verse 19 says, And Joshua said to the people, Ye cannot serve the Lord. What? Ye cannot serve the Lord, for He is an holy God, and He's a jealous God, and He will not, He will not forgive your transgressions nor your sins. That flies against everything that we know about God, doesn't it? He will not forgive your sins. He will not forgive your transgressions. You can't even serve Him. Why? Why would Joshua say that? Why would he say that? Verse 23. Verse 23. Now therefore, put away, said he, the strange gods which are among you, and incline your heart unto the Lord God of Israel. Here was a people that God had used. He had, he had been the one that fought for them. He was the one that, that did the work. They were his people, and he cared for them, and he brought them. Miracles were performed by them. One could chase a thousand. They were God's people, and yet inside there was these strange gods. It was a mixture of, uh, they were firmly in chair number two. They wanted to serve God, but something else was inside, self and, and other Things were drawing them away from God. And that's why he said, God, God cannot. He's a jealous God. He will not share his glory with another. So if there is something else that's taking place of God, he says very clearly here that you cannot serve God like that, and he will not forgive your transgressions nor, nor your sins. Put away the strange gods. We all want to be chair one Christians. Those are the people that are going to make it. They're going to be the ones that make it. But if we find ourselves half-heartedly serving God, out of duty we come to church. We're not passionate about serving God. If I'd rather be doing something else or be somewhere else than come to Wednesday evening prayer meeting. If I go to church because, well, it's the right thing to do. There's a distinct possibility that I'm firmly in chair number two and God cannot share his glory with another. He's a holy God, a jealous God. The people, when they heard Joshua say this, they, they were, whoa, something needs to change. We need to make our things right. And they repented. They made a covenant, verse 24 of Joshua 24. And the people said unto Joshua, The Lord our God we will serve, and his voice we will obey. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and set them a statute and an ordinance in Shechem. They said, God, we'll serve God. We're done with this. We're going to serve God. And they made a covenant. And Joshua dies. In verse 31, 
says that in, in, the, in, in Israel, this is what happened when they made that commitment. They went from chair number two to chair number one. And Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders. These were the ones that were originally had been, he said, you can't serve God that way. They, they made a covenant with God. And now it says that in all the days of the elders that outlived Joshua, which had known all the works of the Lord that he had done for Israel. That gives me hope. That gives me hope if I'm struggling. It gives me hope. By the grace of God, we can change. We can grow in the Lord. And there were many Israelites that started serving God wholeheartedly. They moved into chair number one. The battles were won. Now, now Joshua is telling them, we've, we've conquered the land, but there's pockets of resistance here. that You need to go in and wipe them out. That's what God has asked us to do. And, and so that was the job of these elders, to, to take their, their families and their tribes and do that, clean the land of, of the people that were left, the resistance, because not all of them had been driven out. Finish the work was Joshua's command to these guys. God wants this land clean. And now they've committed their hearts to God, and Judges 1, next, the next turn the page, the next chapter, we see that, that that's what they started doing. Now after the death of Joshua it came to pass, the children of Israel asked the Lord, saying, Who shall go up against the Canaanites first to fight against them? Catch up here. Judges 1, 1 through 4. So they're asking, they, they come before the Lord and say, God, who should go first? Who should, who? And the Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have delivered the land into his hand. And Judah said unto Simeon, his brother, Come up with me unto, into my lot, that we may fight against the Canaanites, and I will likewise go with thee unto thy lot. So Simon went with him. And Judah went up, and the Lord delivered the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand, and they slew them in Bezek, 10,000 men. They started out doing exactly what God wanted them to do. But there were some, there were some, that did not move from chair number two to chair number one. And if there's, they, they started rationalizing, you know, these, 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 these heathen guys, they, they, they're good workers. They're really good workers. They, they, why, why would we take them all out and then have to do all the work ourselves? They started to debate and rationalize. And if there is ever a day when this kind of thought pattern is prevalent today, it's today. You start rationalizing, well, you know, yeah, maybe, but... And we have all these rationalizations, culture all around us. I'm not advocating blind faith. We need to know what we believe. But there is a time when we don't understand everything that by faith we continue on. God, I don't understand it all, but I know and I believe that you are leading me and I will, I'm going to stay firm in what I've what I've committed myself to. Who remembers the word? Chair number one was saved and committed. What was the chair number two? He was saved and compromised. Thank you. They were compromised. And this is how, this is how the Israelites started to rationalize. We're serving God. We're going, we're going to the synagogue. This is my, I'm imagining what they might have said. You don't find this in the scripture. We're serving, we go to Sabbath every Sunday, every Saturday. Every Sabbath we're there at the synagogue. Why should we wipe out all the good labor that's here? It doesn't even make good financial sense. We can put them to work in the fields, and then we'll require tribute from them, and we'll serve God and they'll serve us. Good idea. That makes a lot of sense. They do the work, we, we reap the rewards. This is totally chair two theology. Me first and God is an afterthought. Do we see that in our culture today? Hmm. I serve God and it's between me and God. Nobody should tell me what to do. I can do whatever I like. We forget that our hearts are desperately wicked. We cannot. We cannot trust our hearts. We do best not to follow our hearts or our feelings. We forget that doing things that are right in our own eyes 
That's not a good choice either. Compromise. Not all the elders moved from chair two to chair one. Some of them stayed in chair two, and, and we see that in Judges right here in this chapter that we're in in verse 27. It says, Neither did Manasseh drive out the inhabitants of Bethshean and her towns, nor Tanakh or her towns, nor the inhabitants of Dor and her towns, nor the inhabitants of Ablim and her towns, nor the inhabitants of Meg- Megdido and her towns. But the Canaanites could dwell in the land. And it came to pass when Israel was strong that they put the Canaanites to tribute. Did not, did, did not utterly drive them out. And neither did, neither, neither did Ephraim drive out the Canaanites that dwelled in Gezer. But the Canaanites dwelt in Gezer among them. Neither did Zebulun drive out the inhabitants of Kitron, nor the inhabitants of, of Naholal. But the Canaanites dwelt among them and became and they became and became tributaries. So they, they started taxing them. You guys do the work, we tax you. If you want to live, you pay me. They were in the second, they, they stayed in that second chair. They compromised what they were supposed to do because it, it made sense to them. But what about their children? What about the, the children of these second chair? Generations, good question. What about them? That's what this message is about. Can we see can we see the connection of where I'm living with what future generations, what happens to the future generations? The very next chapter, chapter two of Judges. Verse number ten. Chapter two, verse number ten. And also, all that generation that gathered unto their father. So now this generation says that this generation has all passed away. They've all been gathered to their fathers. And also, all that generation were gathered unto their fathers. And there rose another generation that after them, which knew not the Lord, nor the works which he had done for Israel. How can it be that they wouldn't have told the stories? How did they not know what God had done? I don't know, but they didn't. And the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served Balaam. And they forsook the Lord God of their fathers, which had brought them out of the land of Egypt and followed other gods, of the gods of the people which were round about them, and bowed themselves unto, the, unto them, and provoked the Lord to anger. And they forsook the Lord, they forsook the Lord and served Baal and Ashtoreth. And the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. That was the next generation. Two generations, from Joshua, the elders, to their children, and it was all gone. What chair am I sitting in? I fear in, in, in the greater part of Christendom, the people we know here in the U.S. as Christians, I fear that we often find them in seat number two, chair number two. As I was studying this, it seems to me that chair number two seems to be the broad way. It's hard to say that, but it seems like the broad way, not the narrow way. It seems like the people that come to the Lord and say, have we not, not done many wonderful works? And he says, I never knew you. What is the thing that becomes between God and me? It has to go. It has to go. He doesn't want any strange gods. We, when we use that, do you have a strange God in your life? We don't want to use that term because we can quickly say, no, I don't have a strange God in my life. But what is it that's between me and God? And what really is that then? God is a jealous God. Whether it's things, things of the past, things of the present. Maybe it's possessions. Maybe it's power. Maybe it's position. It can be anything that can come between God and me. The key is realizing that if it's anything, whatever it may be, if it spends any time in my life, then it takes me out of chair number one and puts me in chair number two. It drags me there. And now I serve God out of duty because I'm in chair number two. I serve what I hear other people call a good God. 
but I don't view him that way necessarily. And my children and my neighbors, they don't see the evidence in my life. Do we now see why it's so important to know where we are, where we're at? There are more examples in Scripture. David to Solomon, who compromised, to Rehoboam, who lost it all. <clears throat> I have a graph yet that I'd like to share. This is, I give credit to, um, <clears throat> to Bruce Wilkinson for this. <clears throat> we'll just kind of go through it. Chair number one. They're committed. He knows God. It's a first-hand faith. He experiences God at work. God, he sees the miracles or the... Maybe it's not a miracle. But it depends on what you call a miracle. Saving me is, is a miracle. He, sees, he experiences God at work. He submits to the Bible. He raises godly children. What is chair number two? two? He's compromised. He knows God. At least knows of God. He has a second-hand faith. He sees, he sees God at work. He doesn't experience it, but he sees it out there. He respects the Bible, and he raises good Christian children. They're not godly. They're just good Christian children. There's a, you see the slight difference. Number, number three, he, know, he, he has conflict in his life. He knows not God. He has no faith. He rejects God at work. He doesn't even think that God exists sometimes. He owns a Bible. But he doesn't read it. And he wants to raise good, successful children. That's chair number three. I don't know if you saw yourself in any of those chairs or not. But as you process, maybe this next week, consider which chair you're in. And the hope is that God can move us all, regardless what chair we're in. We can move us to chair number one. And if we're there, then he can keep us there as well by his grace. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Lord, you are a good God, and sometimes we fail to recognize your work in us. We fail to we fail to step up and speak out when we should. Maybe our neighbors don't know how we how we believe because we've been to timid. Forgive us, Lord. Help us to be chair one Christians, ones that are unashamed of the gospel, unashamed to, to live lives that are, that are called out, that, that are separate from the world. We don't even look like the world because we, don't, we are not of the world. People recognize that we're Christians. Help us, Lord to live out that kind of life to your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.